Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. We're delighted that one of our own faculty, Jeff Shornick, is here today to talk with us about an interesting topic, and um, he's going to be introduced to us by Shane Chapman. Shane is the Section Chief in Dermatology. He's an Associate Professor in the Department of Surgery, where dermatology is, and he's going to introduce his colleague, Jeff, to us now. Uh, thanks, Rich. Everybody hear me okay? <clears throat> so it's, uh, it's not often when one of our dermatology residents uh, graduates from the pro program, goes off into the world, starts other academic programs, um, goes to uh, various jobs, pr including private practice, uh, has this wonderful lifelong experience, and then one day comes back. <laughs> but indeed, uh, that is what Dr. Shornick has done. So I was thinking about the first time I ever spoke to Jeff, and this never happens, right? I get this phone call from New Zealand. Um, and late at night, it was early morning there, and Jeff is talking to me, and I know his name because I, we kind of know all the names of the people who have graduated from our program, but I'd never met him. He said, yeah, I'm in, in New Zealand, and this is great. I'm here after the earthquake in Christchurch, but, you know, all of our families back home and grandkids and this and that, we're kind of debating on whether we should come back to the States or not. And, oh, by the way, I have a house in Grantham, uh, and I would love to come back to Dartmouth. Now, that never happens. Like, I never get a phone call from New Zealand. I never get someone calling me asking for a job. Uh, I think we had been recruiting for three years and, and had nothing. So I said, yes, we will make a position. And, uh, and then he came back here. So Jeff graduated uh, from, uh, actually did his internship at Dartmouth as well as graduated from our program in 1980. Went to college at Berkeley, medical school at UCSF, and after Dartmouth, um, did an immunodermatology fellowship at UT Southwestern in Texas. Most people don't think there is such a thing as an immunodermatology uh, fellowship. And interestingly enough, looking at your publications, Jeff, I saw that you were at once very interested in herpes gestationis. Now, most people, non-dermatologists, don't know what that is, and that's okay, but we weren't going to have him lecture about that. We were going to have you lecture about this. So, um, Jeff, uh, I would say you're, he's a really interesting guy. He's been all over the world, been in multiple, and this is great for our, our residents, he's been in multiple clinical settings, both academic, UConn, University of Washington, Dartmouth, and an earthquake-ridden uh, area in, in New Zealand as well as private practice in Connecticut. So rather than tell you all of his publications and what he's interested in, we thought it'd be better uh, to let him tell you how he got interested in um, the current topic that he's going to speak about, uh, formularies and his master's in health administration. All right. Well, thanks, Shane. See if I can get this mic on. It's a pleasure to be here. It is a pleasure to be here, actually. I think uh, somebody once said that, you know, my wife is sitting in the back, by the way. So I'm like, welcome. She, she sees me doing this work, but I'm not sure she really understands exactly what the work I do is. So, so it's a pleasure to have her here, too. 
Um, somebody once said that uh, behind every successful guy there stands a truly stunned and shocked mother-in-law. And um, I think <laughs> I think if my mother-in-law was here today, she'd she'd say, "Wow, what happened to that guy with bell bottoms and beards?" It's <laughs> so. Um, I did do my internship and residency here, and after that I did an immunology fellowship, and then I went to University of Connecticut and was in academics for 10 years. Um, I went to Seattle after that and worked for a group health cooperative of Puget Sound, and no sooner had I gotten there than they asked me to be on the formulary committee, and, and I tried to politely decline, but they, they said, no, no, you, you will be on the formulary committee. So, um, and a year later they asked me to chair the formulary committee, which is how I got interested in this subject. And I inherited a, I think it was a $36 million budget and I'm proud to say I grew that to $86 million in a mere couple of years. Um, and as I got more and more uh, responsibility for management, I decided I didn't know very much about management. so. I went back and got a master's in health administration at UW and wrote my thesis on the history of drug regulation in America. And then they punished me by making me a medical director and I was in charge of medical necessity determinations, you know, those PA things that we all know and love so well. <clears throat> um, and I actually loved that job. It was, you know, it was during the 90s, uh, HMOs were the bad guys. And I thought, well, how cool is this that, you know, there's a physician in charge of medical necessity determinations and I get to decide how the health plan is going to make these decisions. And, and so I started thinking about, well, how, how should you make decisions, you know, are they just based on cost or are there other parameters for making those decisions? So it was a great job for somebody like me who likes to problem solve. And as I got interested in bigger and bigger healthcare issues, um, I applied for a Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellowship and in 99 and 2000 I went off and worked in the U.S. Senate on the Finance Committee which has jurisdiction over Medicare when they were debating the prescription drug benefit for Medicare. So um, after two years in the Senate I decided it was not a good place for adults and um, I hadn't made a pension contribution in five years so I thought I should go make some money and I went into private practice. Um, I retired in 2012, I, uh, the first time, and uh, at the same time I was uh, negotiating my way out of private practice, I was negotiating with a locum firm, which is how I got to New Zealand. So um, I, I only say all that because I think it's, it's an odd topic for a dermatologist to be speaking about formularies and PBMs. Most people don't know what a PBM is, but you know, I ran one, so I know what they are, and uh, you guys interact with them every time you write a prescription. So I think it's something that you ought to know something about. I'm not not uh, going to try to make the PA process more pleasant, just more understandable. Um, this is uh, where I'm supposed to disclose my conflicts of interest. I have lots of conflicting interests, but um, I have no conflicts of interest. I, I do work with some PBMs, but I have non-disclosure agreements about who they are. So that's Milford Sound in, for anybody who uh, has ever heard about it, which isn't a sound, by the way, it's a fjord. Um, 
So um, let me let me just try to frame the problem for you, um, and 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 give you some numbers. So healthcare. Uh, in the 1965, when Medicare was passed, was you know six percent of the economy, uh, and prescription drugs were about six percent of that. Uh, you know, Congress didn't consider anything about prescription drugs back in the 60s because there weren't very many drugs, and they weren't a, they weren't a real relevant part of the budget. So it it wasn't by design that they omitted them. It just they didn't care about them. But today. Healthcare is about 18.3% of the economy, um, and prescription drugs are about 11% of that. The total drug spend in 2013 was $326 billion in America for prescription drugs, and the annual premium, single premium, uh, or family premium was about $17,000. Um, the federal government has about 60% of the healthcare budget in America. Most people don't know that. They're already big in healthcare. You know, they, they run Medicare. They do 80% of Medicaid. They do the VA. Um, they do the DOD. They do public health clinics. The, uh, the federal government actually does pay for the majority of healthcare in America today. Single premium has gone from $2,200 in 1999 to $6,000 in 2014. Um, during the 90s, prescription drug costs were expanding at a, almost 20% per year. Uh, in 2012, it was actually flat, largely because a number of blockbuster um, drugs went off patent and the number of generics went up. Um, but in 2014, it was 13% um, again. Uh, just by interest, in the rolling period ending in March of this year, these are the top 10 drugs measured by cost and measured by number of prescriptions. I'll, I'll give you, I won't read it, I'll just give you a minute to look at it because I'm sure everybody's picking out their favorite drug. I see three in the top 10 that are pretty common in dermatology, Humira, Enbrel, and Remicade. Humira is the number one drug in the world right now, $8.2 billion. Specialty drugs are only 1% of the current prescriptions, but they're almost 30% of the costs, and that's going up. It's expected to increase by 67% in 2015. When we think about inflation, Traditionally, we think of inflation as the cost of a given widget going up from one year to the next, but that's not how people think about inflation in drugs. In prescription drugs, um, it's really total cost. It's a matter of utils and cost per util and the mix between generic and branded drugs. <coughs> so in today's marketplace, um, this is rapidly changing. Branded drugs are over uh, uh, are less than 20% of the prescriptions, but they're almost 90% of the cost now. Um, most of the drug inflation in the last year, by the way, has been uh, from two drugs alone, although oncology drugs are, are uh, rapidly uh, pushing that envelope. 
So here's just you know a concept. It's a pretty simple one, and that's what I call the cannibalizing wedge. Um, if you have a pie of of money, and one demand on it increases, then you either have to expand the pie, or if you can't expand the pie, then that 11% eats into something else. So you know, quite literally, in a health plan, if you're thinking about we're going to add this drug, it's going to have this impact. You also have to be thinking about, well, who in radiology or in oncology is going to lose their job because we can't pay for all of this. And insurance companies are in the problem where they're collecting money now, but uh, their prices are going up not always at a predictable rate. So it's a, it's a delicate dance to try to figure out exactly how to budget this year for next year's costs, given that you don't know what drugs might be coming down the line, or at least what their financial impact will be. So, you know, we're always following the pink sheet. We're always looking at what drugs are in the pipeline that we think are going to come out next year, what drugs are going to have an impact on us, and how much of an impact is it going to have, and how do we build that into our rates. Um, this is just another slide from New Zealand. I want to talk about a couple of conceptual things before I actually get to formularies and PBMs and just kind of lay the background for why they work the way they do. So um, I got my master's degree in 1999, and there are only three things that I still think about. So, so here's one-third of a master's degree for you <laughs> to save you a lot of time. The tragedy of the commons is, uh, is, is a concept. It's a way of thinking about problems in a way that you can better articulate who the players are, what their issues are, and try to get your hands around a very complex problem. And the, the tragedy of the commons was written by Garrett Hardin back in the 60s. And, um, pretty much from antiquity through the colonial period in America, the threat to your community was largely from the outside, whether it was from raiders or thieves or Indians or um, wolves. Uh, the, the thing that we do today in America where we fence off our private property and do what we want is really a fairly contemporary view of the world. Historically, um, farmers would put all of their stock in a common area and build their farms around it and defend the commons. So um, in the tragedy of the commons, what happens is that for each farmer, uh, the, the risk and the cost to him of increasing the demand on the common is de minimis. I can put one or two more head of cattle out there, really won't cost me anything, but all of that return comes back to me. So what happens is that as each of the farmers around the commons demands more and more and more of the commons, ultimately the commons can't keep up with the demand and the commons collapses. And the tragedy of the commons has two key features that are really imperative to understanding it as a model for various societal problems. One is that all of the farmers are behaving rationally and in their own self-interest. We're not talking about you know, thieves and vagabonds here doing nefarious things. We're talking about people behaving rationally and in their own self-interest. And the second key 
ingredient of the tragedy of the commons is that it's not the behavior of any given farmer that's responsible for the collapse of the commons. It's the, um, it's the collective behavior of all the farmers that's responsible. So there are any number of, of societal ills that can be viewed as a tragedy of the commons, and they're all around us. Um, I think that every environmental issue is a tragedy of the commons. The loggers want to log it, the drillers want to drill it, the hikers want to hug it, the birders want to walk in it. Um, you know, you can't satisfy all of those people without putting some sort of restriction on it. And if you allow any one of those farmers to reign supreme, then the commons collapses. You could, you could look at parking spaces downtown Hanover as a tragedy of the commons. There's, there's a need that doesn't meet uh, there's a demand that doesn't meet the supply, and so how do you deal with that? Well, you put up parking meters and you say you can only park here for an hour or two. You can't park here all day. So there are fisheries. Fisheries are a great example. Cod stock. Um, people go out and fish. They start making money. As money is being made, more people go out and fish. The price of fish goes down. People have fixed costs to pay for their boats, so they go out longer, deeper, fish more and ultimately the cod supply collapses. It's a, it's a classic tragedy of the commons. So I learned a lot of things in Washington, D.C., but one of the things that I learned was um, that the, the Republicans represent the farmers. There's no doubt about that. That's who their constituency is. The Democrats have no idea who their constituency is. I think, I think they think it might be the cows, but they're not really sure. But I think really that the responsibility of government is to defend the commons. Um, so it's just a way of thinking about big problems that are hard to solve. Well, the point is that insurance creates a common. Insurance is a pooled resource. We all put a premium dollar in, whether it's a premium dollar or whether it's a tax dollar. We put it into a common pool that creates a commons, and then there are all these demands on the commons for I want my part of it. So insurance is really a social contract. It says I'm agreeing to pool my resources with your resources, and in return, you're going to protect me from low-risk, high-cost events. <clears throat> And the way insurance works is pretty simple when you think about it. Insurance is really a pass-through um, administrative function. They look at the actuarial cost of the benefit. They look at, uh, they try to project what the inflation costs are going to be, cost plus utils. They put in a risk premium. They put in an administrative premium. They put in a profit and margin premium. And then they put in a reserve premium. And those are basically the components of trying to figure out how am I going to make this profitable business? And that insurance premium is um, something that you could look at with using the model of the tragedy of the commons. So you have a common pool of money, and pharma wants their share, and patients want their share, and docs want their share, and widget technology firms want their share, medical centers, academic centers, hospitals all want their share, and there's a lot of demand on that dollar. So the real issue um, is, is what do we have a right to expect someone else to pay for? You know, in, in America, you want what you want. Fine, you can have whatever you want. This is America after all. 
but is it really somebody else's obligation to pay for it? So cosmetic surgery, I want cosmetic surgery, fine, none of your business, but what if I want to use your premium dollar to pay for it? Doesn't it, doesn't it become part of your business? And so um, that's where we start getting into restrictions. This is a big issue. Um, what do you have the right to expect somebody else to pay for? Because that's how you have to design and think about, okay, I'm in charge of making coverage determinations. This person wants a bone marrow transplant for something that's never been reported before, and they want insurance to pay for it. It's really expensive. Should insurance pay for that? So I think that there's a difference between rationing and restricting. Um, rationing is just, is just restricting access to needed services. It's, it's just straight up. Um, you can look at the Oregon model from several years ago when they said, we have this much money, we have ranked, you know, um, 1,300 different diagnoses, and we have enough money to go down to 800. If you have disease 802, we don't cover it. We don't have enough money. That's rationing. Um, restricting is saying, well, uh, Restricting is, is looking at the things that are available out there and say, well, there are things that we contractually exclude. Your insurance doesn't cover cosmetic surgery. Your insurance doesn't cover orthognathic surgery. Your insurance doesn't cover long-term care. We're not saying that taking care of your teeth is unimportant. We're just saying that's not covered under our, this contract, you know? So um, restricting is is looking at the available products and saying, well, you know, if there's a branded product, Lamisil, which is $1,200 for a three-month supply, and there's a generic equivalent um, that's 10 bucks for three months, we'll pay the 10 bucks, we won't pay the 1200 bucks unless you can show there's a medical necessity to do that. That's, that's not only rational, that's what you want your insurance company to do. You know, nobody wants to hear that their insurance executives are flying off to New Zealand to see Milford Sound um, and have a retreat and, uh, you know, bill the insurance company for that and basically using your pooled dollars to do it. So, so you know, there are things that we want insurance to actively say, no, we don't pay for that. We won't pay for Laetrile and in Mexico, there's no evidence for benefit. We want insurance to actively go out and say we will not pay for the following services that are known to be harmful. So the problem is there's a gray zone in between. And the problem is who gets to adjudicate, what are the rules, and what's the appeal process? So if you look at it from a legal point of view, in in law, you really can't defend your decision. You can defend your process. So it's really important for an insurance company to have a defensible um, process. And then there's one other ingredient to that that is we all run into the circumstance where insurance denies something that is so logical you think, this is ridiculous. I mean, you know, this is so much cheaper. Why don't they just cover this? And so there's this problem called the problem of, of wavel and estoppel which means that when you make an exception, it creates precedent. 
And so if I make an exception for you, then legally anybody else who's in the same circumstance is entitled to the same benefit. So, so precedent sets policy. And sometimes insurance companies do stupid things because it sets a precedent that they can't afford. So restrictions are, are inevitable, uh, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's why they make contracts. The contract tries to be clear. We don't cover experimental therapy, so we can't cover. We're not allowed to cover that bone marrow transplant unless you can show me some evidence that there's good, good evidence for benefit. Um, we don't cover cosmetic surgery. We don't cover orthognathic surgery. Your contract will spell that out. So um, I touched on this, but you want insurance to cover that which has clear benefit, clear evidence for benefit. You want insurance to not cover things that have been shown to be injurious, uh, and you want a fair process to adjudicate in between. You want to cover the least expensive of interchangeable products, recognizing that the only alternative to covering everything is to cover some things selectively. So um, what is a formulary then? Um, I think most people, if they think about formularies at all, think that a formulary is just a list of the drugs that we cover. But drugs are always changing. Uh, uh, new drugs are coming into the market. Uh, drugs are withdrawn from the market. Uh, generic products come out. New formulations come out. Uh, new uses for old existing drugs come out. This is a real problem in Medicare because Medicare doesn't allow you to take anything out of a formulary during a contractual year. So if a, if a drug is withdrawn from the market, you might still have to cover it under the current Medicare contract because you can't take it off the formulary until next year. So there's all kinds of crazy things that happened with formularies. Um, I think Actually, uh, as somebody who's run formularies and worked with formularies for years, a really a good formulary is not just a list of covered products, but it's a list of preferred products coupled to an exception process. And maintaining the, re the formulary is the responsibility of the, of the provider, the, not, the, not the individual provider, but the insurance carrier. The carrier would be a better choice of terms. That could be Medicare, that could be DOD, that could be Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield, it could be Pilgrim, um, and it gets incredibly complex because not everybody does that job themselves. Um, if you're really big, then you might maintain your own formulary, you might be your own PBM, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, if you're small, you might contract that work out you might say, well, we will accept the formulary that's maintained by Blue Cross Blue Shield in the contractual state that we operate in. So um, these get very, uh, very confusing. So a PBM stands for Pharmacy Benefit Management, and a, a PBM is a, a classic financial in-between middleman type of corporation. Uh, PBMs administer the pharmacy benefit. 
So a PBM sits in between you trying to fill your prescription and your insurance company. Um, the insurance company maintains the formulary, um, but they don't typically administer the benefit. After all, when you walk into a pharmacy, the insurance company has very little control over whether you go to Costco or CVS or you're on vacation and you're going to be in Florida, you need to fill your prescription there. So a PBM contracts with almost all of the pharmacies everywhere and will allow you to walk into that pharmacy and say, here's my prescription, fill it. Um, they're often but not always managed through a regulated formulary committee. Uh, the, the PBM uses the aggregated buying power of everybody signed up with the health plan to try to negotiate better prices uh, with the manufacturers. So the PBM says, well, look, I'm administering for Blue Cross Blue Shield. I have six million members and I want a better price. So that gives them some clout with negotiating uh, with the various manufacturers. Historically, manufacturers will trade price for N. In other words, they want to expand their market and they'll negotiate a lot of their price margin away. Um, that's changing in the last two years. One of the reasons that drug prices have escalated so much in the last two years is that manufacturers are in the process of adopting a different price model where they no longer are willing to trade and for, for lower price. Um, the other thing that's, uh, that makes PBMs invaluable to us as a, as a management tool is in the process of filling a prescription, the PBM captures the data on that prescription. So it doesn't really care which pharmacy you use. It can look at all of your prescription use. It can say, well, this is a 30-day supply, but you haven't filled it in 45 days. Um, it can look at your medicines filled at other pharmacies and say, well, you know, this medicine that you're filling today has a known interaction with that drug that you filled a month ago. Um, it can maintain an allergy list and it can cross check. So a lot of those things that you get, you know, those pop-up warnings that say, oh, there's a problem in a drug interaction, that's, that's where that comes from. And it's only made possible because there's a central repository of that data and the PBM is that central repository. Now collecting all of that data creates a mineable resource so um, uh, uh, either the insurance company or the pharmacy manufacturers or quality people can then mine that data and look at, well, how often are people on atorvastatin filling a 30-day supply? What's the average? How many people are filling it every 30 days? How many people are filling it every 60 days? How many people are cutting their pills in half or they're just non-compliant? There's a lot of useful data in there. And usually that data is available a la carte for a fee to the interested party. What is the PBM's motivation? What's in it for them? Whose side are they on? <laughs> why, why would they do these things? Because mm -hmm. they seem to be in the mm -hmm. but, but it's hard to know where, what they're doing. 
So, <laughs> so the question is, you know, wh why are they there? Why are they in the middle? Well, because the middle is where you want to be if you want to make a lot of money, because you take money from everybody. So, um, a PBM will get about six cents for filling a prescription, for adjudicating a prescription. So it's a direct fee to the to the relevant insurance company. They will negotiate with manufacturers for rebates. And those, those rebates can get very complicated. They're, sometimes they're just straight up. If you make my product the preferred SSRI for your insured group, we will give you an 80% discount. Sometimes they are a little more complicated. If you will drive 80% of your SSRI prescriptions to our product will give you this. If you only make 60%, we'll give you this. Um, the theory is that those rebates are then passed along to you in terms of a lower insurance premium. But historically, PBMs have not been completely um, uh, upfront with what they do with the PBMs. They also negotiate with um, retail pharmacies. So a PBM might say, look, we have, we represent X number of millions of members and we will use your pharmacy as a select pharmacy, preferred pharmacy, but you have to give us a discount. So they sit in the middle and they collect money from everybody. But they do provide a very useful service. I don't, you know, you, you can't really function very well without a PBM if you think about how complex it is to try to fill a prescription. So I, I, I get that. For me, it's like always as a patient, you know, what is the, the patient's out-of-pocket expense? That's what we kind of deal with every day because sometimes patients won't get that medicine because these, their out-of-pocket is too much. And it doesn't seem like that changes that patient's out-of-pocket expense. So right. It doesn't Directly. It doesn't seem like it directly benefits the patient. So, today, you know. Okay, I'm going to come back to that because I think I'm going to answer that. So, um, PBMs can be privately held or publicly held. Uh, uh, Express Scripts is, I think, the biggest PBM right now. I have a slide on that in a minute. Um, they can be subsidiaries. Prime Therapeutics in Minneapolis is wholly owned subsidiary of the Blue Cross Blue Shield of first two states and now nine states. Um, they can, PBM can be owned by a major chain uh, like CVS, which was previously CVS Healthmark. So they're, they're complicated uh, beasts. Um, and, they, and to make it even more complicated, they may or may not be the same thing as a buying group. So, you know, a buying group is what happens when several PBMs or hospitals get together and say, well, you know, if we six regional small hospitals in the area all agree to use the same buying group, we can probably get a better, a better rate. So um, it's like state boundaries and Medicare boundaries and PBM boundaries and buying group boundaries, all, they're like amoebas and they're all constantly changing, so. So here are the top five PBMs, just FYI. Um, we're, we're talking, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people, 90 million people covered by Express Scripts. 
So I think this comes back to your question, Shane, about you know why are they in the middle and how do they provide a benefit for the patient? So you think about what happens when you actually write a prescription or e a prescription to the pharmacy. The pharmacist receives the prescription, and what the pharmacy wants to know is, other than do I have this in stock, is um, is this member actually covered by the insurance plan? That's the first thing that the PBM checks for. So actually what happens is the pharmacy puts the prescription in the computer and sends it to a switching company, which is another intermediary, which sends it to the correct PBM, and the PBM looks at your patient identifier information and says, yes, this chain is still covered by Blue Cross Blue Shield. His premiums are current. He's still covered by us. And it looks at the prescription and it says, yes, that drug is on our formulary. Um, and it looks at the price and it looks at the copay structure and it looks at his deductibles and, and it says, yes, this is a generic product. It's available at the first tier. It's a $5 copay, but he's not met his deductible for the year yet, so you need to collect X number of dollars from Shane while he's standing in front of you. And all of that happens in an electronic blink of the eye by the PBM, sends it back to the pharmacy, because the pharmacy wants to know, can I fill it and how much do I collect, right? So that's what the PBM does, and that's how it collects all of its data, because it collects it on every prescription, regardless of the pharmacy you use for every patient, as long as it's filled through that system. So if you go, if you send your prescription to Canada, none of that data gets captured. So. Can you say a word about WE e through SureScripts? Mm -hmm. So is SureScripts connected to the PBMs at all or not? Yes. But they're before, because our script goes to SureScripts, which goes to CBS. And then CBS puts it to a PBM, or does SureScripts send it straight to the PBM? SureScripts would be the PBM. So they would adjudicate it and then send it to CBS and say, collect this. Now, a lot of prescriptions, a lot of uh, specialty drugs are subcontracted out. So um, those are administrative decisions. So there's another layer of middlemen in between. Um, this gets really complicated because, you know, a PBM might be administering 600 different insurance plans, and that's why you need computers to keep track of it all. And everybody has a different copay structure. Everybody has a different deductible. You know, an insurance company's point of view is we, you know, it's appropriate for us to create an insurance plan that's very restrictive. Our formulary is crap. We only, care, you know, we only cover these products, but the insurance company's point of view is, look, we're, we're trying to create cheap health plans. We're trying to cover what, what us old geezers used to call catastrophic care. You know, we're not interested in that first dollar stuff. We want to track what they're spending up until X, $5,000, $7,000, $10,000, and then we'll cover everything. But, um, you know, from the insurance company's point of view, a lot of times they feel like they're taking hits because, you know, we are restrictive, but that's what we're doing. We're, we're charging $1,000 instead of $2,000 for this plan. And, you know, we're bringing people who can't afford health care very well into it. So it's a very complicated playing field. So what happens when you want your insurance, health insurance through a marketplace? 
right? If you have a single pair, then there's just there's one guy up there somewhere who makes all these decisions. <laughs> so, um, so the PBM collects all of that data, and that's their real value. They, you know, they have an administrative service that is valuable in and of itself. You can't really run a contemporary plan for 320 million people in America without PBMs in the middle. But their real value is in capturing all of that data. So um, I wanted to leave time for some questions. So uh, here's just the bottom line. Insurance coverage is a social contract. Um, Rational coverage should be based on medical necessity. It's not. It's based on patent status, which is easier to administer. But, you know, administering by medical necessity is not an easy thing to do. Um, PB, um, PBMs not so much, but insurance companies, you know, it's interesting. I, sometimes I think about the fiduciary responsibilities that we have, and, and we think about our fiduciary responsibility to our patients. That's our primary interest. But, you know, most of us have contracts with various insurance companies, so we have fiduciary responsibilities to follow their rules. Um, we have fiduciary responsibility with the regulators. Insurance companies are sort of in between, too. You know, their, their contract isn't typically written with the patient. Their contract is usually written with your employer. So they have very complex relationships. They have a fiduciary responsibility to their stockholders. You know, as a, as a money-making venture, if they're in the for-profit world, you might argue that's their primary responsibility. But how can they do that without the, meeting their fiduciary responsibility to patients, too? So these, these get very complex. Rationing, formularies, PBMs. I would need more time to, I think, do a better job on that, but I'll show you some slides from New Zealand instead, if you prefer. <laughs> Do you have questions? Does that make sense? So sometimes drugs are not covered under the pharmacy benefit, but actually paid for through the medical benefit. Uh, and oftentimes they're more expensive and, and oftentimes don't have the same reauthorization processes. Can you explain why that is and how that decision is made uh, and so, how that might affect the, the commons? So it's an a, uh, a interesting history. and. Um, I love history, so I always, you know, I get diverted by these questions. So the Democrats had a proposal for national health insurance every year before Congress from 1906 until the 60s. And every year it failed because the Republicans and the AMA basically blocked it. So in, in 1964, the Democrats came up with a political plan um, saying, well, in, you know, in, 19, in the 60s, there was an unwritten rule in America that people retired when they were 65. And since the majority of insurance, in, all the insurance in America was provided by employers at that point, when you retired at 65, you lost your health insurance. So the Democrats came up with this idea that 
at the time of retirement, since everybody lost their hospital insurance and could, could potentially go into financial ruin, they thought, let's not propose national health insurance again this year. Let's only propose it for people over the age of 65, because that's the group of people who are losing their insurance. And the Republican pollsters went out and came back and said to the Republicans, this proposal is so wildly popular in the country today that if you don't do something to derail it, you're going to get creamed in the next election cycle. So the Republicans came up with a plan that's designed not to pass because they didn't, they, they don't, they didn't and they still don't think that health care is a legitimate federal function. So they came up with a plan that said, we're not going to do hospital insurance. We're going to cover 80% of all outpatient care. And Wilbur Mills, who was chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, which had jurisdiction over Medicare, said, what a great idea. And so he passed the original Democratic proposal, which was Medicare Part A, which is hospital insurance, and the Republican proposal designed to derail Part A, which is what we know as Part B, Medicare. So drugs that are self-administered are covered under Part B, and drugs that are hospital-administered or office-administered are covered under Part A. And that type of structure in pharmacy benefit still exists. So if a drug is administered by you in your office, it goes through Part A, or in the commercial world, through the hospital insurance. And if it's, if it's administered by the patient, which you know pills are, and, and now some injectables are, then it goes through Part B, or the other part of your insurance. So that's how that happened. Rich? So no, it was really very interesting. We actually have two healthcare systems in the US, which is we have the VA, which is kind of a national health service, and then we have everybody else. Can you contrast the way the VA handles formularies compared to this, what sounds like a free-for-all? <laughs> so um, now I can't remember exactly what year it was, but um, I think it was back in the 80s. Medicare got tired of paying uh, retail. And so they passed a law that basically is what we call the best price law. And best price means you cannot sell to anybody anywhere for less than you sell to Medicare. So that's, that sets the floor. Medicare is the lowest price that you can get. Well, uh, when they passed that law, the, the VA almost died because their prices were so much better than Medicare or anybody else that a year later Congress had to come back and exempt the VA. So the VA is its own little entity, but it, it runs in the same system. The, the VA is like a big carrier. They can go to health uh, manufacturers, pharma, and say, you know, we're big. We cover, I've forgotten how many lives, we want a really good price. And again, historically, um, that, that's how pharma did their business. They said, well, many more lives, lower price per live, more profit. That was, until the last two years, that was how they did things. Not so much anymore. But, so they're, they're just another hospital system from, you know, from the regulatory and from the, from the pricing perspective. Did I answer your question? Yeah. 
Again, it seems that they don't have all the other things that go on top of them. I mean, they have a restricted formulary and they seem to live within it. Mm -hmm. Does that save a lot of money compared to... Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, New Zealand is a small country. You know, it's the size of Colorado with, with 500,000 fewer people. They're, you know, they're contemporary and comfortable in the modern world, but it's, you know, it's not big. They don't have a ton of money. So, you, you, you know, you learn to live with restrictions. You know, a lot of the biologic products we don't have in New Zealand. And, you know, that's part of how they get along. The VA doesn't, isn't anywhere near as restrictive as that. So, I mean, you know, less, less funding equals more restrictions. When you get angry because, you know, New Hampshire Medicaid turns it down, you shouldn't be un unhappy with Medicaid or New Hampshire. You should be unhappy with the people making the political decisions that are underfunding it so that they they have to just sort of take the Oregon approach and say, well, we just, we just can't cover it. We don't have the funds. We don't have the money. Since you're doing such a nice job of lucidly explaining the whole government aspect of this, <laughs> it seems like you describe buying groups and PBMs. There really are opportunities where, in theory, groups and hospitals and stuff can could negotiate with buying power to get better prices. We, we've all learned this thing that in the ACA, the big protection in the United States was for pharma so that there are restrictions on what negotiation can be done on price. Can you, I guess now I don't understand that. Why, Medicare also uses PBM stuff. Why, why couldn't they negotiate better prices with that buying power? Well, they could. Um, that's a political decision. Well, what, what, what is the political decision? What was restricted? What can't be done? So when Medicare was first set up, um, this is a complicated political dynamic, um, and the Republicans then, as now, it, it's, not, it's not that they don't believe in health care. You can talk to any Republican, and they'll say health care is important. Everybody should have health insurance. It's, it's just not a federal function. It's a state function. And the last thing we want is Big Brother in Washington, D.C., telling everybody what to do. We don't want the government involved with health care. So when Medicare was first set up, I think there were 37 uh, regions the country was divided into. I, I could be wrong on the number. I think that's right. And that number has gone up and down through the years. I think there are 16 now. And each, each of those 37 regions was autonomous and could make their own determinations as to coverage. It's largely still that way, although more and more central Medicare is making more and more uniform decisions across the line. And, and the formulary decisions were the same, too. So um, in the ACA, the political dynamic was still the same. Republicans are opposed. Democrats basically want Medicare for everybody. And the political compromise was, okay, we will reluctantly go along with this, but we still, we still don't want the big government negotiating prices. We still don't want big government involved with health care. You need to push this out into the private marketplace and, and let the regional Medicare people deal with it. So you have a bunch of different formularies. Did I answer your question? But at the level of a region, then, they could negotiate hard on price. It's not that federally insured people can't have price negotiations, that they can't do it at the national level. They can't do it at the national level, but they can do it. Big Medicare can't do it. But little Medicare intermediaries, that is what they do. 
two questions, a small one and a big one. The small one is, why is it that the biologics, three of which are in the top 10, the anti-TNF agents, have been allowed to price escalate by over 100, 150% since they were originally released? Mm. That's number one. Number two, it's more controversial. I've examined the audience. Why do the oncologists get such a pass on rescue therapy in terms of what agents are able to use in contrast to, uh, to uh, say, many others? Mm. <laughs> How much time do I have? <laughs> um, well, uh, price negotiation is very complicated. Uh, the the drug company uh, typically has the attitude, "This is my football. If you want to play with my football, you have to pony up to the bar." And um, how much negotiating your power your your company has. Uh, you know, I often, I often think that the, the problem with the way the American marketplace, which is very distorted, is set up is that it's like you're playing cards and Shane has 50 cards and I have two. <laughs> and, you know, the only, one, the only two cards that I have are the number of people in my plan and my ability to pit um, like products against like products and say, well, you, Humera, you know, there are, there are other TNF blockers, and if you won't give me a better price, then I'm making my preferred TNF blocker this one. And, and then, you know, all the drug reps are out there as an army promoting Humira. It's, it's, a, it's a battlefield. You know, it's a financial battlefield. And um, I just thought, would have thought one of your uh, express scripts would have said, no, we're not going to pay 15% more for your drug this year rather than last year. Because... You know, it didn't get from nine or ten thousand dollars a year to thirty thousand dollars a year like that. It mm -hmm. happened steadily, mm -hmm. and there's been seemingly no pushback. Right, and pharma's position is, well, fine. You know, don't cover our product and see what happens to your health plan because people won't sell, sign up for your health plan. You know, that's that's the chicken that they play. So, so what's happened in the last two years um, let me just let me just say something about that because the last two years has been stunning um, it's very complicated in the generic field uh, two of the biggest generic manufacturers were in India and uh, the FDA yanked their license because uh, over concerns that they're of, of purity of product and quality of product and you know manufacturing process at the same time uh, several of the generic manufacturers consolidated. Um, if you take something like tetracycline, which has gone up 18,000% in two years, um, there were four manufacturers two years ago. Uh, one of the manufacturers was involved in the India shutdown. Another manufacturer was bought out, and they decided to turn off the tap for tetracycline. So the number of tetracycline manufacturers basically have gone from four manufacturers to one. And at the same time, the drug industry has decided that they no longer want to follow the old model of we will trade you N for price for N. We, we don't care about N anymore. This is what we're going to charge. And if you don't like it, fine. What are you going to do without us? <laughs> So it's a very complicated field, and it's changing all the time. It's kind of hard to keep up with. That's great. Mm -hmm. Did you have a question? Yeah. Um, 
would be, I'd like to back, backtrack a little bit to Medicare D and the uh, rationale and politics for the structure of that relative to formula and drug negotiation. Mm -hmm. So what's your question? What was the dynamic that finally got it passed or why is it structured the way it is? Um, the politics behind D were the same as A and B. Um, you know, Democrats still want, ba basically the Democratic end game is Medicare for everybody in the country, cradle to grave. You know, single payer system, ideal. Republican is health care should be something the states do. The feds shouldn't be involved with it at all. And so as the political system polarizes more, those dynamics get more difficult. But in the middle is what's happening back home and am I going to get reelected if I vote for or against this? And so that dynamic is different in every district. But the prime overriding philosophical difference between the two parties is no different than it has been for the last hundred years on, on, on health care. Health care is an immensely political issue. It's not an apolitical issue in Washington. There's no such thing as an apolitical issue in Washington. Everything is political in Washington. So the dynamics were the same. Um, enough of the Republican, uh, particularly on the moderate Republican wing, uh, started to side with the Democratic side and say, geez, you know, our constituents want health care. Drugs are going up really fast. They can't afford it. People are angry all the time. Something has to be done. But um, they still didn't want big government involved with negotiating prices, and that was a fall on their sword demand of the Republicans saying, we'll only go along with this in the end if it's pushed out into the individual marketplace or to the insurance companies. We want this administered through the private health care system. We don't want big government doing this. And, and that's, our, I mean, that's our line in the sand. We won't cross it. And that was the political dynamic. So the Republicans insisted on a clause in Part D prohibiting big Medicare from negotiating prices. We have time for and time for that. You can, that was my question. Was that your question? Mm -hmm. okay. Legislation specifically prohibited mm -hmm. price negotiation. So here's the deal with Medicare. Medicare is in the same position the FDA is in, in Washington, D.C. The FDA and Medicare are both part of the executive branch. Congress doesn't like Medicare. Congress doesn't like the FDA because they're part of the executive and can't be trusted. The executive doesn't like the FDA and they don't like um, Medicare because they're constantly coddling Congress for more funding. The Republicans don't like the FDA because um, they're interfering with commerce. And the Democrats don't like the FDA because they're not tough enough on industry. And so both of them have this political dynamic. You think being president of the United States is the hardest thing in, the, in America? Mm. Head of the FDA is the hardest job in America. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for adding a lot of clarity to something that is always confusing. And this has been very enlightening, and thanks for doing this. My pleasure.